Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. COVID-19 cases are blowing up here in Illinois, and our very own Dr. Mia Taramina will be here in the second half of the podcast to answer your questions. But speaking of health and health care, President Trump and Republicans in Congress have been trying to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, for the last four years. This morning, they took their third shot at the ACA in front of the Supreme Court. So what will this case mean for the future of Obamacare? And what kind of ruling can we expect? Julie Robner is the chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News. She's also the host of the podcast, What the Health? <laughs> Love that name. Julie, welcome to Reset. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So tell us more about this case and why the ACA is being challenged again. Yeah, this case is a little bit different. Um, in 2017, uh, the Republicans tried and failed to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. But at the end of the year, they did a big tax bill. And as part of that tax bill, they uh, reduced the penalty for not having insurance to zero dollars. That was one of the most controversial and unpopular pieces of the law. Um, it said that the law basically said you either need to prove you have health insurance or you need to pay a penalty. Like car insurance, and, right. Yeah, like car insurance, except that... Even if you didn't have a car, you had to do it. And that, that went to the Supreme Court in 2012 and said, you can't do that. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, it's, a, it's an, a proper exercise of the taxing power. So flash forward to 2018, well, now the tax has gone away because they reduced the penalty to zero. So about a dozen and a half Republican attorneys general and a couple of governors filed a lawsuit that said, hey, no tax, and the whole thing's unconstitutional. And it's the whole law, not just the provision that remains. And it went through some a lower court judge said, yeah, I agree, and I think I agree the whole law should go. Went to the appeals court, and an appeals court panel said, yeah, without the, the penalty, the requirement to have health insurance is unconstitutional, but we're not so sure the whole law has to go. They sent it back to the lower court, and the Democratic states that are defending the law, because the Trump administration is not, went to the Supreme Court earlier this year and said, look, this could take years for this to come back through the courts. In the meantime, the whole law is hanging in the balance. Maybe you should step in now. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, okay, we'll step in now, but we're not going to step in right now. We'll hear this this case later on. And today was later on. Yeah, right, right. So what did we learn this morning from the oral arguments? We learned what we always kind of knew, that this is not the world's strongest case challenging the Affordable Care Act. I mean, basically it turns on whether right now, because of the way Congress eliminated the penalty, they, they couldn't take out the whole mandate. So basically the law still reads, it used to read you have to buy insurance or pay a penalty. Now it reads you have to buy insurance or pay a zero penalty. And the Republican states are arguing that that's a, that's a requirement um, to buy insurance. And everybody else is arguing, no, it's still yeah, right, a choice. Right. You can buy insurance or pay nothing. Thing. So that's essentially the, the big part of what it turns on. But I think even before that, the justices are dubious about whether the states can even sue, whether they have standing. And if 
if the requirement to have insurance is no longer constitutional without the penalty, whether the whole rest of the law has to go down. I mean, I think after the arguments, um, people who are more expert than I say that they think the most likely thing is the court might say, yes, the mandate is no longer constitutional, but nothing else has to fall with it. With the addition of now Justice Amy Coney Barrett, does it change the likely outcome? I think going into this, if Justice Ginsburg had still been there, there was every reason to believe that the four liberals and the chief justice, who has now ruled twice for the Affordable Care Act, would vote to keep the Affordable Care Act standing, because this case is considered considerably weaker Mm -hmm. than that case. But now, of course, there's only three liberals left, and with the chief justice, that's still only four. So you don't know where the conservatives were going. But I think Justice Kavanaugh today, as many had predicted, Justice Kavanaugh is not a big fan of striking down large portions of law if one small portion is found to be unconstitutional. And he was pretty upfront about that today. Now, none of this, you know, the thing about Supreme Court oral arguments is often they're just asking questions because they want they want the answers to, to use in their opinions that might be something completely different. So you really can't tell that much from oral arguments, but certainly court observers were saying that Justice Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts were not necessarily buying this, and clearly the liberals weren't, and that would be five to four to either say the people who are suing don't have standing and make that go away, or if not, that the mandate either doesn't do anything without the penalty, or if it's unconstitutional, then nothing else would have to go. That's not suggesting that that's absolutely the way the court's going to rule. I've seen oral arguments and have the decision go something completely other, the other way. But that, that certainly has been the assumption. Right. To me, it's, it seems that this, this one little area, this when we're talking about the, uh, the actual uh, mandate, it struck down and it's still kind of hanging there, essentially for Republicans to say that's going to be our core to get rid of this, uh, the ACA. If they truly want to get rid of the mandate, why not just fix it themselves? What, what's stopping Republicans? They're really in it for the long haul. They want the whole thing removed. They can make the penalty a dollar. That would fix it. They could mm-hmm. say you either have to buy health insurance or pay a penalty of a dollar. Um, but they haven't wanted to do that. Um, the president, of course, they haven't wanted to be crosswise with President Trump. And he wants the entire law struck down. Yeah, when we talk about this, it, it, and it's not lost. I mean, this conversation is happening in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, while right now in, in, the, in the Midwest, here in Chicago and in Illinois, Wisconsin, cases and hospitalizations surging. If the ACA does get struck down, what does it mean for Americans who rely on it and rely on the ACA and, and for our overall health care system? There's roughly 23 million Americans who get their health insurance directly through the Affordable Care Act, either through the expanded Medicaid or through buying their own insurance on the individual market. But hospitals um, rely on a lot of funding that's in the law. There are uh, people with employer insurance have a number of protections under the law. Um, it would really sort of wreak havoc on the entire health care system. And as you say, at a time when the entire health care system is really, really stressed. Mm-hmm. I mean, this case brought to the Supreme Court by the Democrats. And the idea being that uh, right now, when you think about the overall feeling, and, and when I say things like, uh, you know, the Supreme Court this is the wrong time to be doing this during a pandemic, it almost feels like it's the Republicans that are doing it, but the Democrats want to set the record straight and get this case taken care of. 
Well, they had won. The Democrats, I should point out, they, they asked the Supreme Court to do this before the pandemic started. Mm. Um, and they wanted the, the, the Supreme Court to actually resolve this before the election. What they asked for was for the Supreme Court to take it up last spring and decide it this past June. The Supreme Court said, we will take it up, but we will not take it up until the session that begins in October. Um, and then we thought, because it was one of the early cases taken for this year, it would be at least heard before the election. But they said, no, we're going to hear it the week after the election. So the Democrats had actually... Actually, there, there, there was no pandemic when they asked the Supreme Court to do it, and they did it in anticipation of having this whole thing put aside uh, by this past summer. Yeah. Uh, so what comes next? I mean, we said the decision won't come till the spring. Is it just going to be quiet until then, or what are you keeping your eye on as the case continues to develop? We will see what what unfolds in other ways. I mean, as you mentioned, Congress, should it have the desire, could actually make the case moot before they decide it. But that seems unlikely under the sort of current makeup of Congress. Julie Robner, chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News. She's also the host of the podcast, What the Health? Julie, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. One month ago, Illinois was seeing about 2,000 new cases of COVID-19 a day. Today, we've hit another new daily record in Illinois for COVID-19, 12,623. Every week, we turn to Dr. Mia Teramina for answers to the latest COVID questions. Dr. Teramina is an infectious disease expert with the DuPage Medical Group. Doc, why are the numbers jumping like this? You know, there's there's a lot of different reasons. Some of this is a little bit of the post-Halloween stuff that we're seeing and and more um, tests coming through. We're absolutely seeing more cases just in all age groups all across the community. We knew as the weather improved and people started going indoors more, gathering uh, with their families and friends, we we were having these higher risk encounters. And it's not uncommon to have entire families or entire friendship groups where everyone is becoming positive. Oh, my. I mean, the latest news is that the governor is going to, uh, I think it's the south and west suburbs, they're, they're going to uh, even tighter mitigation, tighter restrictions, taking a, a, a standard group of 10 down to 6. That's not just restaurants. That's, that's professional settings. That's personal settings. The idea that you shouldn't be around more than six people because, as, as mentioned yesterday, uh, you know, if you, you have two people in a group of 10, pretty much are talking about the odds. Oh, absolutely. And that, that's what it's coming down to. And I, I really hope that for the safety of all, as we approach these hospitals being inundated with patients right now and, and our healthcare systems being, you know, very, very pushed to their limits, that we adhere to some of the mitigation measures that are coming in. I know there's going to be a lot of resistance and pushback. Um, people are tired and people are, are very tired of all of this. Mm-hmm. We all are, but we have to all do our part. And, and this is these are some serious numbers. Let's go to Marta, who's standing by on the near west side. Marta, welcome to Reset. Yeah. Hey, Dr. Charmina. Um, thanks for taking my call. My husband works in an office environment, non-healthcare setting, and somebody in his office tested positive for COVID. We looked on the CDC website. We looked on some other guidelines, and there's just a lot of conflicting information on how many negative COVID tests anybody should have before they return to the work environment and how far apart those tests should be spaced. Mm. Thanks, Marta, for that call. 
Thanks, Marta. Yeah, there is a lot of conflicting information regarding multiple COVID testing in a, in a single individual. And uh, to some extent, each entity, each business entity and, and different consulting entities have their own policies. Um, you're not going to ever want to get tests that are any closer than 24 hours apart. So you're going to always need, if you if you have any need for repeat testing, it, they need to be two tests at least 24 hours apart from each other. Depending on the nature of the interaction with the higher risk individual, we don't typically use negative testing as a means of kind of a get out of jail free card. You still have had that higher risk exposure and observation for 14 days and or quarantine, depending on if it was a masked or unmasked encounter might be something that needs to be considered as well. But for the most part, if there are two tests that are done, they need to be at least 24 hours apart. If it was a lower risk encounter, potentially the ability to get back into the workplace, depending on the work responsibilities and roles. But we're almost getting to a point where all who can can work from home, maybe should work from home during this period of time. There we go. And it also brings up, I saw the story about that there really isn't a specific universal policy for private businesses. If if somebody gets a, yeah, if somebody gets COVID, they don't have to tell the other employees. Like there's no federal or state policy on how that goes. So there's a lot of people who are worried about being in, in shared spaces right now. Absolutely. And, and it's not just in, in private businesses. I mean, there's different policies, healthcare system to healthcare system, and, um, you know, in pretty much all walks of life, school system to school system, exactly what information is disseminated to whom and when, and how many details you might get, whether it's just there's a student in your in your child's school or there's a student in your child's classroom. You know, what level of information are you going to be getting and receiving? Contact tracing when you have a volume of patients like this becomes nearly impossible. We have far too many cases to really be able to get to and test every single high-risk exposure. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go to Leslie, who's standing by in Wrigleyville. Leslie, welcome to the program. I work at an art studio in Chicago, and we normally teach many, many, many classes, um, which is our you know main source of income for the next few months. It's a relatively large space, but the heater that we have is one of those big gas heaters. So it's just kind of like recycled air and I can spread people out six feet apart, but I'm still really concerned about doing that. So certainly we're going to have to be mindful too to some of um, you know the state mitigation uh, impositions that might come into place and limit our quote unquote non-essential businesses moving forward, which is really unfortunate. But to the extent that you are allowed to remain open, definitely everyone masked and distanced at least six feet. They shouldn't be removing their masks even when they're at their station, so to speak. When it comes to these HVAC questions and issues, I would definitely speak with someone who's a professional in that area. There is sometimes room to add a HEPA filtration system uh, to get that extra layer of, of sort of security um, and to look at the exchanges of air that are happening. The recommendation is four to six exchanges of air per hour. And if you are able to have some good ventilation and circulation, you should be at much less of a risk than a stagnant indoor non-windowed space. So certainly have someone who's an expert in that area take a look at the ventilation. Otherwise, keep the numbers uh, lower than usual. Keep everyone socially distanced and masked and hopefully you can have some good art classes. Yeah, there you go. Let's go to Alan who's down by Midway. Alan, welcome. Is it irresponsible? I'm thinking about maybe building a tent and creating airflow, even using like a heat fan and then a fan to exit the air to create a constant airflow in my backyard. Is Hmm. that something that's been safe? Is that, yeah, just your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Alan. <laughs> so any any indoor or outdoor space that has multiple exchanges of air and, and good continuous flow is going to be better than any space that does not have that capability of doing so. So um, if you're looking at, you know, putting a tent outside to, you know, have more seating and arrangement for family members, I would still caution that um, family gatherings definitely need to be on the smaller side this holiday season. And really the official encouragement is going to be your household only and potentially, mm. you know, one or two other folks that have been in your isolation bubble, for example, uh, the, the grandparents coming over. But other than that, uh, this should not be a time for big family gatherings, indoor or outdoor. In the best possible setups, uh, we still are going to be at risk right. just because of the nature of being around each other. It sounds like a great uh, concoction, Alan, but I think it's still about how many people are in a, in a confined space. Let's go out west to one of my favorite towns, Geneva. Jim is standing by. Jim, welcome to Reset. Hi, guys. I uh, had a question about my college daughter. She uh, is away at school. She caught the virus. She recovered. And as I understand it, she is now immune for some period of time. But she is coming home for Thanksgiving. And my question is, is she capable of bringing the virus into our house, even though she's immune herself? Because she will be flying. She'll be in two airports and on one airplane. It's a great question, Jim. Thank yeah. you. Jim, that is a great question. Um, the long and short of it is, in theory, somebody could still carry active virus, even though it's not infecting themselves because they have some protective antibodies. So there is that possibility. Um, it is unlikely your daughter would get reinfected um, within a, a short period of time from her previous infection. And the other challenging part is even if she were to get tested, some people can still detect dead viral particles in their nose swabs for weeks to months. So it's difficult to see if she's asymptomatic, if any possible virus she might be carrying is active virus, if she's had new higher risk exposures. So definitely masking, hand washing, you know, social distancing as best is able and make sure everybody else is healthy and well too. Uh, again, your daughter as her own being will not be at super high risk of getting exposed and, and reinfected, but in theory, she could potentially bring virus back. Yeah. Let's go from Geneva back downtown to the neighborhood West Town. Tiffany standing by. Tiffany, welcome to Reset. I was curious what the data is saying with respect to exposure in schools, and given the fact that we're looking at this resurgence, do you think that Schools should revisit their policies. That's a great question. I'm I, I, talking about middle school and lower school. I'm talking about primary school. Yeah, primary school. So, I mean, this school is going to be still an issue. I mean, the same issues we've yeah. had for the last couple of months. I break with some um, possible views on school in that I do find school and education to be among the um, highest essential services. And in that regard, it would be my preference that the focus is, is put on kids being in school more so than any other non-essential service out there. I would much rather get a carry out and have my daughter in school than I would to be able to be eating in a restaurant and have my daughter not allowed back in school. Mm -hmm. To the extent that schools are able to socially distance, mask wear, and have appropriate screening, we are seeing that schools are not in general super spreader sites. Will there be cases? Absolutely, because kids can get exposed anywhere and they may become sick. But what we're not seeing is when we find out student A is sick, we're not seeing that 10 other people in the class are becoming sick because that distancing is there and the mask wearing is there. And through the state of Illinois, we have everything from full virtual all the way through full in-person. And we do know that in the, in the schools that are having full in-person classes, we're not seeing tremendous upticks, but we are also seeing many communities that are very mindful to their city, district, and, and county numbers and, and pulling back into more virtual and 
hybrid models out of an abundance of caution. So we're really stuck here because many, many believe that these kids can be in school safely, um, but we are, we are really up against a wall with the numbers we're seeing in the surrounding communities. Let's go to Park Ridge along Northwest Highway there. Bring Mike in. Mike, welcome to Reset. My question is this. Everyone is, is very excited about the possibilities that the uh, new vaccine news is bringing. Um, but if you actually get COVID, uh, you know, from what I've read, your immunity only lasts three to six months. So if you get the vaccine, how long does that confer immunity? And if it is only three months, how practical is that for everyone to get two shots every that's, three months? That's in a the wonderful, wonderful question, Mike. And, and, and we got about a minute here. Yeah, thanks for that question. I was surprised. It took uh, several questions before someone had a vaccine question. <laughs> right, right, right. It is some exciting news here. We don't know, Mike. Um, we're, we're not uh, We're not sure. The, the hope is that this would be a seasonal vaccine. We don't know. It might actually last longer than that, but it's going to take some time. And that's part of looking at the long-term data. And the data is really only going to precede distribution of this vaccine by about 30, 60, 90 days because it's still very new in the ability to release the longer-term data. The hope would be that we are not giving a vaccine that's only going to last three months. The hope is that it would be at least seasonal, but time will tell. Yeah, we don't. Have to, that, we want to read the fine print on that. Uh, Dr. Mia Teramina from the DuPage Medical Group. Dr. Teramina, thanks for joining us for the special Tuesday version of our segment. We hope to do again on Friday. Thanks for joining us. Take care, Justin. Listen to extended weekly Q&As with Dr. Terramina by subscribing to the Reset Podcast. And even though info around COVID-19 is always changing, there's plenty of great advice from the doctor dating back to March on our website. Just go to wbec.org slash reset. That's it for today's Reset. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you right back here tomorrow. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.